This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. The film critic Pauline Kael, known for her biting criticisms and skewering honesty, said once, A good movie can take you out of your dull funk and the hopelessness that so often goes with slipping into a theater. A good movie can make you feel alive again, in contact, not just lost in another city. Good movies make you care, make you believe in possibilities again. If somewhere in the Hollywood entertainment world, someone has managed to break through with something that speaks to you, then it isn't all corruption. The movie doesn't have to be great. It can be stupid and empty, and you can still have the joy of a good performance or the joy in just a good line. An actor's scowl, a small subversive gesture, a dirty remark that someone tosses off with a mock innocent face, and the world makes a little bit of sense. Sitting there alone or painfully alone because those with you do not react as you do, you know there must be others, perhaps in this very theater or in this city, surely in other theaters and other cities now, in the past or future, who react as you do. And because movies are the most total and encompassing art form we have, these reactions can seem the most personal and maybe the most important imaginable. The romance of movies is not just in these stories and those people on the screen, but in the adolescent dream of meeting others who feel as you do about what you've seen. You do meet them, of course, and you know each other at once because you talk less about good movies than about what you love in bad movies. Again, those are the words of Pauline Kael from her book, For Keeps, 30 Years at the Movies. And to this talk show host, I agree 100% with the late Miss Kale that film is the most total and encompassing art form that we have. For a cinematographer to capture a certain light, to be able to admire the work of the greats or look forward to the next Spielberg gives my world a wisp of hope that what we live every day will be immortalized on screen. My passion for film and film scoring has been well documented on Center Stage, and today I am happy to introduce a film brethren to the show. Joe Myers is a film and literary critic of the Connecticut Post. He is on the board of the Focus on French Cinema in Greenwich and the Avon Film Theater in Stamford, and I want to welcome Joe Myers. Welcome to Center Stage. Thank you so much, Pamela. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you back. We've only met once briefly in talking about Focus on French Cinema. Yes, And yes. We, you and I just didn't have enough time together. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we were focused on that festival, so we didn't have time really to broaden out our discussion. Well, now we've got time to focus on film and Great. you and your artist journey, which is what this show is about. And I just have to quote a line from Casablanca. Joe, who are you really and what were you before? What did you do and what did you think? <laughs> there you go. That's your opening question. Well, I I am one of those people that knew from the time I was a kid what I wanted to do, which was work for newspapers. Really? Yeah, I grew up mostly in Philadelphia. I was born in Chicago, but I grew up in Philadelphia, and we were one of those families that got... The Inquirer in the morning and the Bulletin in the afternoon, so I, I had... Uh, ink in my veins you from did. yeah and i i worshiped joe mcginnis who went on to have a great career uh in journalism was mm -hmm. an inquirer columnist he became a culture hero of mine i went to work for the junior high school newspaper the high school <laughs> newspaper 
And, you know, it might have been a deficit in a way that I was so single track that I went right to Penn State journalism, went to the daily newspaper. Penn State has the collegian. And I never looked back. And, you know, I feel grateful that I got into newspapers based professionally, basically in the early 70s, when they were in a, pe- a peak period. Yeah, and I was able to ride that out until very recently, you know, where, where now print is in free fall. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I actually was able to get a separation agreement from Hearst. So now I am pursuing freelance wow. stuff. Fantastic. You know, so it's it's... It's been an interesting career, but to have had my basically my whole career in newspapers, I st- sit down sometimes and think it's amazing that I was able to pull that off. Isn't that fantastic? And I think I was only unemployed for maybe four months between jobs, you know. So that's that's the other thing about newspapers through the seventies, eighties, and even into the nineties. Wow. You could always find work. Wow. You know, and and one of my fears for the younger generation mm-hmm. is they won't have the opportunities I did in terms of just jobs and Correct. benefits Correct. and all of that. So uh, I worry about that. It's a completely different ball game, isn't it? Totally, now? totally. And the, and and the you know the publishers of print newspapers still don't quite understand how they're going to shift completely to digital. You know, and maintain mm-hmm. the advertising base that print used to mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. when it was monopolies in major cities. So I'm glad to have been able to step away to pursue other film uh, ideas, mm-hmm. freelance ideas. I, I'm, I'm in the midst of trying to launch a podcast. Not that the world needs another one, but me and a friend of mine <laughs> have a good idea for one. So that's interesting. And so I'm just going to see what, and, and I'm, I'll be gearing up for Focus on French Cinema in the fall with with, with Renee Ketchum. I mean, that's like a six month deal to, oh, okay. to watch those that films and get busy. yeah. So so I, I'm very busy. It's so exciting what you say though. Timing is everything, and that era of when you were first involved with with news and in, in print was such a pivotal time anyway in our history. Totally, you know. And you you quoted from Pauline Kael, who I've got to give some credit really for what I pursued because we used to get the New Yorker when I was a teenager Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I can still vividly recall her first piece for that magazine which was a long defense of Bonnie and Clyde which had gotten a lot of negative press The, the critic for the New York Times Bosley Crowther hated it and she pointed the way to a different approach to writing about movies that appealed very much to me. And on and off throughout my career, I have written film criticism. And I've always found her a role model. Absolutely. Because no of, her, of her ability to see the quality in movies that aren't so good. Mm-hmm. And then to see the emotional impact a great movie mm-hmm. has on us for so many years. So I have, I, I never met the woman, but I always, if I had met her, I would have thanked her really yeah. for being an inspiration. Yeah, and she was a mentor to many young filmmakers yes. and critics. Of and course. and she, I mean, she was revolutionary. Yeah, she was. You know, I I grew up reading the the critics in the Enquirer and the Bulletin who really weren't inspiring. You know, they were kind mm-hmm. of like publicists. You know, and they okay. tended to like almost everything. She was refreshing in that you felt like she was telling you what she really thought, 
and she didn't care if it bothered people. Exactly. You know, and, and so that was very liberating for, in I think, the, a lot of people. And in the case of that particular Bonnie and Clyde review, that yes. was that was pretty incredible, you know. The length that of was it was benchmark. incredible and she had she had been having she had been working for the New Republic and was having problems there. Mm-hmm. They rejected the piece. They said it was too long, our readers aren't interested in this. And she got it to William Sean, the legendary New Yorker editor. He took it right away. And I believe within five or six months of that being published in the fall of 67, she got her gig, you know, as the critic of the New Yorker. And, you know, the rest is history. And then, of course, being a woman at that time, which was male-dominated kind of position. Totally. I mean, that's why, you know, when people talk about the importance of women writers today. I always say to people that women writers were always important to me growing up. I mean, she was, she was major. Renata Adler was major Mm -hmm. who who worked for the New York times for one year and brought Mm -hmm. sort of a new way of reviewing movies too. So some of my major role models throughout my life have been women writers for sure. Do you think there's a different tone from, from a woman? I you know I I think that Pauline Kael always prided herself on writing without age, without mm-hmm. gender. I mean people didn't know if she was straight or gay, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? The, mm-hmm. And I admire that where it's all about what you're writing, the words you're putting down on paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you know that a writer should transcend gender if they're really oh, brilliant. Absolutely. You know somebody like Mary McCarthy, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Hardwick, you know, th- these were real uh, titans in mm-hmm. my growing up years of mm-hmm. reading. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Oh, yeah. Pauline Kael stands strong even today. I would advise any young person who's interested in movies and movie criticism to grab that book you mentioned for keeps, which is kind of a compendium of the best of her stuff and just absorb it. We actually also had on the show Brian Kello, who Mm. wrote a biography. Biography. And he, he just loved the the time he spent with the family and her yes. daughter and uh, it's yeah she was an incredible woman she oh was my an gosh. amazing woman <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I'll never agree with her review though of the searchers but never mind you know oh I I mean the great thing about Pauline Kael too was she she broke you of that notion of having to agree with a critic yeah you know she was so provocative that even if like for instance I re- I remember her absolutely loathing ordinary people. Oh, which Robert hit, Redford's you film. know, which hit me hard mm-hmm. as a family domestic film. You know, so mm-hmm. so so, I broke away from that idea of a great critic has to be somebody who reinforces your own opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Very, she was yeah, fascinating was when she liked something you hated. Yeah, you know what I mean, or hated something you loved. I, I remember her review of Terms of Endearment got people very angry because she absolutely hated it. Uh. <laughs> but I admire that. You know, she marched her own drummer. But it forces all of us to look with different eyes. Absolutely. I mean, you know. And 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 question your judgment sometimes and mm-hmm. really think if the mm-hmm. points she's making, are they valid? What do you think of the, of her take on it? You know, she it was like you were in a conversation with her every week when you read her. So Joe, do you think that's the real job of of a critic actually? I mean, is it to put all these ideas out there and challenge you? I think so. And and I think uh Trying to figure out what you think about a movie is is the hardest part of a critic's job, you know, because a lot of movies are just mediocre and, and you don't really respond to them mm-hmm. 
very well or very poorly. And that, that was the hardest part when I was doing it as a weekly pursuit for the Connecticut Post, mostly in the 90s. It, it got to me after a while because there were many times where I would see something that was just mediocre and it'd be mm-hmm. like, A, why bother putting mm-hmm. it in the paper? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What can I say about it? You know, other than that it's a piece of Hollywood consumer product, mm-hmm. you know, and I often felt sometimes it was more of a consumer job than an artistic job. Interesting. Because the bulk of the films that were coming out were product, not yeah. attempts at making an artistic statement in film. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's a very hard job. And today more so, I'm so glad I'm not doing it regularly now because in the summer you've got to write about all of these comic book movies mm-hmm. and movies that are designed for children, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and you're writing for adult readers. Right. I, I remember when I was still doing it full time, I think it might have been Shrek 2 where I kind of had a, a bell go off where I thought, why bother writing mm-hmm. a piece about a kid's movie for the adult readers of a newspaper? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure I would not want anyone to look up the clip of whatever I wrote because I had to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, but this is where we've come. This is where we've come. It's it's an interesting dilemma. And I think that's why I think the kids and a lot of moviegoers have, have glommed onto Rotten Tomatoes because they really don't want an in-depth review of Avengers Endgame. They want to find out if a, if a spectrum of reviewers and, and moviegoers liked it yeah so they see if it got at 85 or a 95 but what saddens me is i don't think the current climate will nurture a new pauline kale Mm -hmm. or andrew saris or any Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. people that blew my mind when i was young exactly it's it's a rough time for that It, it is a big transitional time yes um, let's get on to something a little cheerier. Great. <laughs> so I love to ask this question of real film people, of which you are one. What was the moment when you first discovered film and knew it was your passion for life? That's a tough one because I was taken to movies from a very early age. But Both of my parents were dyed-in-the-wool moviegoers. And when I grew up in both Chicago and Philadelphia, it was the time where every neighborhood had movie houses that you could walk to. Right. So I can't really tell you what the first movie I saw was. I, I remember having a vivid response to the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I must have been only six or seven years old. It was it terrifying. It, was, it terrified me. I went home. I remember it was, I was convinced there was maybe a pod under my bed. Absolutely. It made you question, like, could your parents transition into yes. these monsters? <laughs> so, I mean, that was, that was pivotal. But it was in my teen years when I was kind of going off on my own to movies that I saw things like the Manchurian Candidate, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And and I remember there was a rep house in Philly called the Bandbox, which for for my purposes, I had to take a trolley and a bus to get to. It was on the other side of town in a neighborhood called Germantown. They showed Citizen Kane on a double feature with the Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, And I had God. heard about Citizen Kane forever. In those days, it wasn't shown on television much. There was no such thing as cable or streaming or right, any of that. Right. So I went across Philadelphia, and fortunately, the movie blew my mind. That's fantastic. The other pivotal moment that I remember so vividly was in 1968, when I was 16 years old, seeing 
2001 A Space Odyssey mm -hmm. in Philadelphia at a theater which showed it in Cinerama. Oh, okay. That you know, would with, be the way. With stereophonic sound. Mm -hmm. I went with mm -hmm. some friends from school. And it was one of the first times where I saw something where I said, I don't quite understand this, mm -hmm. but it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And we went mm -hmm. back again to see it like a few weeks later. And I still didn't really understand mm -hmm. the ending of the film. But that had a profound impact on me in terms of this a movie can be something fantastic that is about history and the world mm -hmm. and technology and, and so many things that it, it blew my mind. So it, do you think... In the case of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, do you think it was a big visual impact for you that was so extraordinary? It was the whole package. The fact that the way he used classical music, mm -hmm. you know, rather than a score, mm -hmm. like that Blue Danube, when That's you right. first see the space station. Is, I know, the dance in space, it, literally. It's, it's, so it was a combination of what you were seeing, the music, but also that it was questioning sort of human life you know mm -hmm. the the evolution that the dave bowman goes through in the final scenes is mm -hmm. so eerie it is and it that is man eerie. is you know when the novel the people forget the novel actually came out after the film was released i, I think kubrick wanted to have arthur clark sit on that so mm -hmm. that people could react to the film mm -hmm. And the novel made it very explicit that that last thing was an evolutionary leap. This is a star child, a new form of human being. But you kind of intuited that watching mm -hmm. the film. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it it was really a profound experience. I can't I can't say much more than that. Now, Stanley Kubrick said that a great film should be more like music than fiction. It should be a progression of moods and feelings. Would you agree with that? Totally. And, and the, I have to also mention, a few years earlier, I was only 12 or 13 when I went to the neighborhood movie house to see Dr. Strangelove, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> which didn't have as profound an effect. But, I mean, that was a time people forget about now when we were terrified that there might be a nuclear, a nuclear war, war any day. day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, at school you had the duck and cover stuff. Mm -hmm. And, again, the fact that this director could make you laugh. Mm-hmm. At the possible end mm -hmm. of humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was another, it, that film stood out. It was unlike anything around it in terms of how daring it was. Absolutely. You know, that you could laugh. Gentlemen, you can't fight here. This is the war room. You know, lines that people remember 50 years later. Do you think that his time in England had anything to do with that? I mean, he'd really turned away from America at that point. I think he was able to sort of turn inward and really get away from all the Hollywood pressures, mm -hmm. you know, all the commercial pressures. He was one of the first guys before the the real new American film emerged in the 70s when directors were given more control. Kubrick had that control in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And I think he was able to just decide, this is what I want to explore. This is what I want to put on the screen. And he never varied from that. After his bad experience on Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, right. he never again got into the position where anyone told him, we want you to do this. You yeah. know, and he had final cut on all of his films yeah. through even Eyes Wide Shut. They couldn't change his, his version before, right. you know, because he had that in his contract. But yet the Orson Welles of this world had to capitulate to Hollywood yeah. and have their films you know, you know, cut to death. 
Absolutely. With, but, with no control. But going to England, I think, was part of it. He was physically separated from, mm-hmm. I think, people who are in Los Angeles fall prey to, like, all of that industry buzz and mm-hmm. what's hot, who's in, who's out. He he never really got into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what Pauline Kael referred to as the corruption. Yeah. And, and it's interesting when, to get back to Pauline Kael, she never really liked Kubrick much. She mm-hmm. panned The Shining. Mm-hmm. She panned Full Metal Jacket. She panned 2001. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that was one of my first breaks <laughs> with her where I just said, she doesn't get it. Right. You know, right. And, and which was also, it's great that it sort of bolstered your own, your belief in your own opinion. That's right. And you were young then. You were I was coming young. up. And yeah. you had a completely different vision. Absolutely. What did, what did you think of Kubrick's um, Barry Lyndon? That was the first one of his movies that my first exposure to it, I was kind of cool to it. It mm-hmm. didn't re- and that was a case where I felt that the casting of Ryan O'Neill was maybe a was wrong. a was a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That he wasn't strong enough mm-hmm. to carry that picture. Mm-hmm. I subsequently saw it again and have come to appreciate the beauty, the sheer beauty of it. Oh, my God. And the innovation. I mean, he had lenses ground that could photograph candlelight, you know. And, but it's not one I go back to a lot and really, really love the way I do uh, Dr. Strangelove in 2001. <laughs> The pinnacle for me. I always look at Barry Lyndon and kind of think in the mo- same mode, believe it or not, as a film you've mentioned, which is The Magnificent Ambersons. Yes. Which, in a way, you can just sit back, just close all the windows in the house. You know, you it, you let the music pour over you. There's just something about those films yes. that transcends time. And maybe you could call both of those flawed masterpieces. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Wow, this is this is such fun. I can tell you have to come back on again. Um, ha, do you have a definition for what you think is a good movie? Oh boy, I think a good movie is something that a I remember weeks after I've mm-hmm. seen it. Mm-hmm. B, I feel like it's doing something I haven't seen before. Right. Because there's so much uh, recycling in movies yeah. where you just feel like you've seen everything. Mm-hmm. And because you have. Because you have. That when you see something fresh or somebody who's trying to do something new, mm-hmm. that to me is what movie-making art is all about, that they're using the form to try to move in a new direction does anything stand out in your mind right now in that way and i know this is a hard question because right now we're a little bereft yes we've you know and we've lost so many of the greats like robert altman Mm -hmm. and kubrick but you know it was funny i I do this thing online where i i sort of highlight the birthday of somebody important Mm -hmm. and today is the birthday of paul thomas anderson oh yeah and I think his movie Magnolia mm-hmm. is a is a modern classic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it owes a lot to Robert Altman and I think other filmmakers. But he was pushing for something new there. Mm-hmm. And actually, the first time I saw it, I was slightly put off by it because mm-hmm. it was so long and kind of in your face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But over subsequent viewings and over the years, I've come to admire that as a major film of of the last 20 years. See, this is one thing I love about film viewing is when we see a film and in subsequent viewings, we 
constantly keep seeing new things. And that's what keeps me in the film biz. I mean, it's very exciting. It's a discovery. It's like one of Kale's favorite films during her tenure at The New Yorker was Nashville, the 1975 Robert Altman film. And that, to me, is a classic example of you just see new stuff in it because he, he again, in an innovation, he had 24 major characters who were crisscrossing That's over right. a couple of days in Nashville. You know, it dealt with politics, That's it right. dealt with the bicentennial. That's right. And, you know, it knocked me out the first time I saw it. I loved it. But there's so much to explore in that movie in subsequent so viewings. <laughs> you, know, you follow different characters. You see, you see elements of characters that didn't interest you as much mm-hmm. in the first viewing. You know, it, but Altman, I think, at his best was just one of those great, innovators. He was an observer, really, wasn't he? And that same way Hitchcock would leave a camera on on an actor, you know, Altman would dare to do the same in a different fashion. And he would fail. You know, he made movies like Brewster McCloud that I really don't care for, Mm -hmm. but he was always experimenting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, as I believe she wrote, he would use sort of the experiments of his lesser films and then somehow find a way to make them work in films like Nashville. Yeah. A working genius, Absolutely. you know, it, but, it but he had the freedom back in that time, too, of support mm-hmm. from studios where he was able to make failures and still come back and make other movies. Now I don't think there would be that sort of lenience toward a filmmaker who made a series exactly. of flops. Exactly. You know, it, it's like three strikes and you're out, yeah. which is really unfortunate. You know, I'm a big fan of film scoring. And I, I believe, really believe, that today's classical music of the future is quite possibly uh, the great film composers. I agree. And you and I have talked about Bernard Herrmann. Of course, he, he was a fantastic classical composer, yes. as well as film scoring genius. And you and I probably have our favorites. Yes. Um, this goes to another show, I'm sure. But just one question. Do you think that the music can better a film? Totally. Totally. And I've talked to actors in, in a couple of cases who saw first cuts of movies mm-hmm. that they thought were a disaster until the music. In fact, I think Janet Lee even felt a little bit like that in Psycho. in Psycho. And a case that comes to mind is Mercedes Rule made a movie with Jonathan Demme called Married to the Mob. That's right. Which has music almost nonstop, pop music. And she told me when I interviewed her years ago that when she went to a rough cut of that without music, she was like, oh, my God. This is this so, is so dead. over the top <laughs> and nuts. And then she saw it with the music, the music, and it was a different experience. And there it goes. Well, Joseph Myers, this has been an experience talking to you. And 28 minutes has gone by way too fast. Yes. We, we need to have part two, part deux soon. Thank you for being my willing guest on Center Stage and talking about movies. And we both love movies, and your love is always evident in all your writing. Please come back and join us again. Thanks for having me. This has been a total pleasure. You bet. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage.